you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, as we read God's Word. Beginning in verse 1, this is God's Word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on a judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Thus ends that portion of God's word. If you could turn back to our text for the message this morning, we'll be out of 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll begin with verse 1 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Again, as I read to you, I remind you what I'm reading now is God's own holy word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, to be his horsemen, to run before his chariots. 
He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and the vineyards and the olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to the officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you'll cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go to every man his city. Thus I will end the reading of God's word. Let us now go to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, we pray now as we look at this text this morning that a time of, in some ways, a sorrow in Israel's history, but yet a time that would come to foretell and talk about the coming of the great King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at that, we pray and ask that you would add your blessing to your word, and that I may speak the truth, and that I may make clear the gospel, and may exalt Jesus in everything I do. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been a long time since I've been in this pulpit, I think. I don't remember exactly how long, uh, but I was here. Uh, I, I, I was trying to remember, and maybe Mr. Welliver uh, remembers, it must have been about 2006 or 2007, sometime in that uh, time frame for the first time that I was there, and then been several times since. So it's a joy to be back with you, even though there's a lot of people that weren't here back then, uh, and we weren't even here the last time I was here. But that's a joy to behold and see all the new people and the new faces that are here at the church. So we thank God for you and for how God has blessed this church. Uh, so let me just set the stage for the chapter this morning that we're looking at. It ended with Samuel judging Israel as a circuit judge. And Israel was basically free from the Philistines at that time, which was good. God was caring for them, and they had accepted Samuel as their judge. But in chapter 8, time has passed, and things have changed. And uh, there's going to be some different things, and we're going to have a complete change of government uh, that Israel's going to undergo, uh, even greater probably than we have in our nation every four years. So Ewald says this about Samuel. Samuel's one of the few great men in history who in critical times by sheer force of character and inevitable energy, uh, when convinced of the necessity with all the force and eagerness of their nature, and who then initiates a better form with the happiest results amid much personal suffering. So that's a a good uh, resume for Samuel there. Now, I want to deal with one thing real quickly before I start in the text. There are always people that want to tell us uh, that there are contradictions in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard about this or not. It might be a new thing in St. Paul. I don't know. But, uh, but they have always been those people. In particular, they look at a, a book like Genesis and they'll say, well, there's, you know, there's... Um, uh, differences. Uh, you know, if you read the flood account in Genesis 6, and then you read the flood account in Genesis 7, there's a lot of differences. It's not, it's not the same whatsoever. And so they say there must have been two uh, writers, and the one writer used the name Elohim for God, and the other writer used the name Yahweh for God. And so therefore there were two writers because of that. 
And uh, a lot of people buy into that. And they say, well, you look at, you know, chapter 6, and God tells Noah to bring the animals two by two. And chapter 7, God tells them, uh, God, uh, Noah, to bring the animals two by two, but some seven by seven. And, and so uh, they say, see, the, these are contradictions. Well, they're not, actually. And the name of God used makes perfect sense because in the creation uh, chapter that deals with creation and how the flood affects creation, chapter 6, the name Elohim, which is the name that God uses in Genesis 1, uh, is the name that is used. And, of course, if you want creation to continue, and this is a little bit, you know, controversial because it's biology, but you have to bring the animals two by two if you want creation to. But when you get into chapter 7, now it's concerned with God as Yahweh, their covenant God. And so there you'll find that they bring animals, the clean animals, by seven because they need animals to sacrifice. And if you sacrifice animals, it's really hard to have creation continue after that. So it all makes perfect sense when we look at that. Well, the same thing is here uh, happens in First Samuel. They'll say, well, you know, there's two writers. There's one who's very favorable toward the monarchy, and there's one who's very unfavorable to the monarchy. And they divide up uh, the, 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 the positive person is chapter 9 through 10, 16, and chapter 11. The negative one is chapter 8, and the end of chapter 10, and uh, the end of chapter 11 into 12. Well, again, you can read it, and you can tell that it's all God's word, and it's all one writer. Uh, so I just want to deal uh, with that to begin with. But... Um, I got to deal with, there's a question we'll look at as we talk about this. Was it God's will that Israel have a king? I don't know how you'd answer that this morning, but I think that's a question we're going to need to answer. Now, in verse 1, we're told that the past, there's been a passage of time because Samuel is now old. We're not exactly sure how many years have passed between the chapters, but probably around 20 years. And these would have been very peaceful years, as I mentioned, in Israel. And Samuel would probably be around 60 years of age at this time. And we're told that when he was old, he appointed his sons to be judge over Israel. Now, the question that arises here is, did Samuel have the right to appoint judges? All the way through the book of Judges, it was always God who appointed the judges. It wasn't men or previous judges um, who appointed them. In fact, there's one instance in the book of Judges, and I'll give you a second to figure out who this is. There's one incident where there was a judge who refused to be appointed as a king and also refused to appoint his sons as judges. Now, if you know who that is, give yourself a gold star. That's Gideon, where it says, The Lord, uh, men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, and you and your sons, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So Samuel appointing judges, his sons as judges, appears to be wrong on two counts. One, it didn't seem like the judge had the power to do that. And so that seems to be wrong. Second, it doesn't appear from our text that Samuel's sons were qualified to be judges. But there are things we don't know. We don't know exactly when did Samuel appoint his sons as judges. Maybe at that time. They were walking, apparently, in the ways of the Lord. And so maybe he did it at that time. Uh, and so when the elders came to Samuel, it's interesting, they don't accuse him of nepotism, of, of appointing his children for that. But R.P. Gordon calls this Samuel's little dynastic experiment. 
uh, that he was trying there. So in verse 2, we're given the names of Samuel's sons, and where uh, it appears that Samuel had great hopes for his children uh, by the names that he gave him, uh, gave the children. Uh, the firstborn, Joel, means Jehovah is his God. The secondborn, Abijah, means Jehovah is my father. That appears that Samuel has some good hopes for him. But in verse 3, we see the ironic fact, if you remember back to what Samuel had observed in the home of Eli, is now happening in his own home again. Just as Eli's sons had abused the office of priest, now Samuel's sons are abusing the office of judges. And they're very similar offenses in both cases. But there was one interesting comment there in verse 3, you'll notice that says about Samuel, it says his sons did not walk in his ways. Now notice, interestingly, it doesn't say they didn't walk in the ways of the Lord. It says they didn't walk in Samuel's ways, which tells us that, again, Samuel was very godly and walked in the ways of the Lord, and even perhaps what he did in appointing his sons was done with the best of intention. But they turned aside after gain, and that was something that was not to happen. And a ruler was not to take unjust gain, according to Proverbs 28.16. And the way they got that, of course, was taking bribes. That's how judges make extra money, is to take bribes. And so instead of administering justice, they perverted justice at that time. So in verses 4 and 5, the judges, or the, excuse me, the people come, the elders come to Samuel to give a request. And it starts with two statements, two reasons, which are actually true and legitimate reasons. They say to Samuel, you're old. Well, nobody really likes to hear that, uh, but it is true, and I don't like it either, but unfortunately it's true with Samuel, it's true with me as well. And so uh, that's something that not necessarily you're just happy for people to tell you. The second thing is that your sons are not walking in your ways, but That's also true, but again, that's not necessarily something you want to hear from somebody else. I've noticed through the years that although we may know our children are not behaving, we don't particularly like it when somebody else points it out to us that our children are not behaving. And uh, so uh, we don't like to hear these things. Now, uh, one problem here is the last time the elders came to Samuel, They came to pray for him. That's what they came to do. But this time it's a little different. Now they're coming with what seems to be a demand. And so uh, they're coming to him as their appointed leader, but they're not coming in humility and submission to him. They're like children. We're going to see that later in the chapter as well. Children have demands, but they don't really want to know about the consequences. You know, if you eat all that candy, you're going to rot your teeth. And the kids say, I don't care. Give me the candy. That's that's all they care about. They're not really caring about the consequences. And the big problem here is the reason for the request. That's what we want to focus on. Why do they come with this request? And that's the big problem. They say, why? So we can be like other nations. In the Hebrew, that's two words. That's all it is. It's the word kol, which means all, and it's the word goy, which means nations. So we want to be like all nations, in two words there. And it's very similar, that wording is very similar to what God said in Deuteronomy 17, 14, which seems to indicate that they're basing their request on this verse. It says, when you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, 
and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Now, what is it about a king that's so appealing? What would be better of having a king over having a judge like Samuel that is over your nation? There's a myth in our nation's history that at one point the people wanted to make George Washington the king, but he refused to uh, accept that. Well, that's a myth, but it is interesting to note the people of the New World did not make George Washington a king. They gave him a different title. Now, the one thing that's different about a king over a judge is a kingship is hereditary. So you are going to have uh, children of kings grow up to be princes and then grow up to be kings. And so there's a stability there that's not necessarily there with the judges because God was appointing the judges. So you never knew who was going to be the next one. So the interesting thing is Samuel tries to make judging hereditary by appointing his sons. And King Saul's sons would not even be those that would be the hereditary um, receivers of the kingship. So it's kind of ironic how God does that. Now, the request of the elders is not a total rejection of God, but it is a partial uh, rejection of God. It's more like we want to keep God, but we don't really want to have to trust him. Okay, We'd like to keep him, but we don't want to trust him. And so this request displeases Samuel in verse 6. And in Hebrew, it's actually more explicit. It says the thing was evil in the sight of Samuel. Now, there could be many reasons for that. But the important thing here is to note what Samuel did. He didn't do what I would have done, just got mad at him. He didn't do that. Um, He didn't argue with them, which also I pretty fond of doing. Uh, He didn't do that. He simply went to the Lord in prayer, which was the right thing. And this was Samuel's normal procedure. So in verse 7, we have a big surprise. Even though the people's request is a rejection of God, God tells Samuel he should listen to them and grant them their request. Now that kind of stuns us a bit. Why would God tell Samuel that? One clue might be in the end of that phrase, in all that they say to you. To take all they said, they want a king like other nations. And the fact of the matter is, that's exactly what they're going to get. They're going to get a king just like other nations. And Samuel's going to make that very clear in the verses ahead when God tells Samuel what he should tell them at this time. Now, the second thing is that God says that Samuel should note this request for a king not as a rejection of Samuel, but as a rejection of God. And that's important. John Woodhouse notes something very interesting here. He says, up to this point in the biblical narrative, God has only very infrequently been referred to as a king. So I looked in my concordance and looked at the word king. And in all the time up to here, to this point, the only reference I found to God being a king is Deuteronomy 33.5. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated from the people, and you should be mine. But he says there he is a king going forward. And so the, this uh, title of 
king after this will be much more frequent in the Bible. And in fact, the Psalms, there's 20 references in the Psalms alone to God being a king. But the important thing for ministers, and for any of us in a particular job or elder or deacon or whatever we may be or whatever our job may be, is that when people reject us, if we're trying to do the Lord's work in the Lord's ministry, to recognize they're probably not rejecting us so much as they are rejecting God. So they're saying, yeah, we've had God as a king, and that's been okay, but we'd really like a human king. That's what we like. Talk about a downgrade, right? That's, that's a real... It's like saying, I've got this 200 gigabyte computer, but I'd really like a Commodore 64. Now, if you get that reference, you're old like me, okay? Everybody else is going, what is a Commodore 64? And you don't understand. But look it up on Google. You'll find it. It exists. But this is a downgrade. And, and uh, again, not only that, you're old. And William Blake, he says, when men show themselves incapable of appreciating a high privilege, it's, be- it's meet that they should suffer the loss of it, or at least a diminutive of it. Because God was not forsaking Israel, utterly, as we see here. In verse 8, God says what Israel's doing to Samuel is what they've done to God over and over again from the beginning since he took them out of Egypt. David to Samora says the word abandon, that the word pair abandon and serve found in verse 8 are usually found in the Old Testament in terms of apostasy. So in verse 9 again, God tells Samuel to listen to the elders, but he tells them that before he listens, he should warn them. So let's look at verses 10 to 18. Verse 10, we see Samuel is a faithful prophet of the Lord. He tells Israel that everything that God had told to tell him, like Paul who told the Ephesians, I have not shunned to declare unto you the entire counsel of God, teaching house to house. And Samuel says the people were asking, and this is interesting, he says they were asking for a king. And that is the phrase, asking for. And what king are they going to get? They're going to get Saul. And what does the name Saul mean? Ask for. Okay? Isn't it interesting how God works all of these things out? So they ask for a king, so they get a king whose name is asked for. And so God sometimes gives us exactly what we ask for, but that's not always a good thing. Okay? So I'm not going to go into detail in this section, but I want to tell you the key word here, as you probably noticed when I read the text, is the word take. Take, take, take. It's found six times in these verses. And the emphasis is on the king and what he will take. And that is going to be, Samuel tells, the characteristic. And it's going to be the characteristic not only of the worst of kings. Unfortunately, it's going to be the characteristic of even the best of kings. That is going to be the characteristics of taking. If you want to say the worst of kings, you might think about Ahab. What did Ahab do? He took a vineyard that did not belong to him. He took it. But you say, yeah, that was a terrible king. And Rehoboam, who becomes a terrible king following Solomon, you say, yeah, those are terrible kings. But let me bring another name before you. David. Would you say he was a terrible king? But what did he do? He took another man's wife to his home, didn't he? And even took the life of that man. So even the very best of kings were going to be takers. The result of having a king, Samuel says, is you're going to end up just like you were in Egypt. You're going to be slaves. It's going to be the same thing. You're going to end up exactly that way. 
And so that's how they're going to end up at that time. Now there's a balance in God's word about leaders. Number one is leaders are supposed to be supported by those whom they lead. And I'm not going to go into all the scriptures, but you can find those. But that doesn't mean they should be overly compensated by the people that they serve. The leader should be enabled to eat, uh, to live a lifestyle that is on par with the lifestyle of those that they lead. That's the way it should be in the scripture. And so the difference that we see in verse 18 between their condition in Egypt and their condition on the king is very clear. When they were slaves in Egypt, they cried to the Lord, and they heard, the Lord heard their cry and delivered them. But in verse 18, it says, when they cry to the Lord, the Lord will not hear them in that day. Well, let's look at the last few verses of the chapter. The people, we see how they now interact with Samuel, who is the last judge of Israel. It says, the people refused to hear the voice or to obey the voice of Samuel. But again, that shouldn't surprise us because that's what they've done all through history. They've refused to hear the voice of their leaders. And if we note verse 20 very carefully, that we may also be like other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They want a king who will judge them like Samuel judges them, but they want something a little extra. They also want a king who can fight their battles, which is something that Samuel didn't do for them. Now, up to this point, they've had God to fight their battles. Deuteronomy 24, The Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. And that God had fought their battles. He did in in chapter 7. He fought their battles so they could uh, win against the Philistines. That's that's the way God has done it. He has always uh, faithfully uh, delivered them and helped them to conquer their enemies when they followed him. But now they want a king to do that. And as I said, that's a downgrade. Now we say we don't want God to fight for us. We'd rather have the kings to do that. And that's not a good thing at all. So in verse 21, Samuel once again, as he always does, goes to prayer. And in verse 22, we might have expected him to appoint a king at this point, but no, instead he dismisses the people. All right, I've kind of tried to rush through, maybe I haven't, but through the exposition of the text so I can get to the application of the text with you this morning. We learn some things from the text. One thing we learn, and maybe you realize this, is that even though we as godly people or people who follow the Lord have children, it doesn't necessarily mean that our children are going to walk in the same steps of faith that we walk. Now we think that, and we think we have promise for that, and and we like to believe it and like to graze our children with that expectation, but there have been many examples in history and in the scriptures especially where a good king gives birth to a very wicked king and where a wicked king gives birth to a very good king. And there have been 
examples in our times and histories. You know, when great leaders die, think of some of the great spiritual leaders that have died in years, in, in even recent years. And oftentimes the, the uh, tendency has been for the leader to appoint their son as the uh, replacement. There's a follow-up. And, and that works out once, once in a while, but often, oftentimes it doesn't work out at all. And we realize that. And so, uh, again, we see children who seem to be, we're raising and they seem to be doing well, but all of a sudden we find out they're doing things out of an evil heart. John Woodhouse says the best of leaders can have the worst of sons. Richard Phillips points out that in the period of judges, we have four judges who were succeeded by their sons. And that was Gideon, Jer, Eli, and Samuel. And it le- and in at least three of those things, it wasn't a good thing. The father did not follow the son in his ways. Now, there's a biblical reason why this is the wrong reason to, or wrong thing to do to appoint children to follow you, your children. Because we recognize the calling into the ministry is the work of God, right? You know, we think, as pastors, sometimes we think, well, I just want my kids to grow up and be a minister. I just want to be a minister. And we think that's what they all should be, but it's not necessarily true because God is the one who calls them. And let me give you an illustration. Let me ask you a question. Think about this. Right now, how much do you know about the children of the 12 apostles? What do you, what do you know? Well, I'm not going to make you answer that because I don't think you can know anything because we know absolutely nothing about the children of the 12 apostles. And so we see that it's not always the case. And I think a lot of parents, and again, this isn't to do away with the fact that as parents we should, we should raise our children godly and, and raise them rightly and, do, and bring them up in the ways of the Lord. But a lot of people live under condemnation for a, lot, a big part of their lives because their children are not following in, in their ways. So let me ask you a question about the will of God. Did God want Israel to have a king or not? I mentioned that earlier. In Genesis 17.6, God told Abraham, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And in Jacob's prophecy over his son Judah, he clearly indicated there would be kings that would come from his line. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until the tribute comes to him, and unto him shall be the obedience of the people. And God gave Moses commands how future kings should live. And God told Moses in Exodus 19.6, he wanted Israel to be a kingdom of priests, which implies, of course, that they would have a king. And in Deuteronomy 17, God clearly said that there would come a time in Israel when they would have a king. And wouldn't we say that the office of king portrays Christ in a way that none of the other offices do? So we could safely say from the Bible there was going to be a king. But in verse 7, God says this request is a rejection of him. Now that can be hard for us to reconcile. How do we do that? But we should understand that just because God gives us what we want is not always true that he approves of what it is we're asking. There's that wonderful portion of scripture in Ezekiel 14 where God tells Ezekiel, Son of man, 
These men have taken the idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes idols into their heart and sets a stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. Oftentimes that happens to us. God answers us, but we're coming to him with an idol in our heart. And we need to always kind of check ourselves and clear our hearts before we come to God and say, God, I want this. I really want it. But why do we want it? And just because God gives it to us, and I have, through my years of ministry, I have seen so many people who've wanted something and prayed for it and then said, God has given it to me. And then it turns out to be their downfall. And so it's not always a great thing, as I said. Keith Thomas says, God will sometimes answer your prayers to let you learn the hard way that what you were asking for was wrong. I think that's a good statement. Another says, this incident proves that God answers prayer occasionally, which he does not approve, and makes the answer the chastisement of the petitioner. One of the worst judgments God can give is to give us over to what we want. Romans chapter 1, I mean, that, that's a cha- I mean, if you want to talk about society today, you go to Romans 1, right? You see it, where God gives everybody over to what they want to do, to their own desires. Again, let me quote Heath Thomas. He says, think about this. Some of God's greatest mercies to us come in the form of unanswered prayers. Come in the form of unanswered prayers. I, let, me, uh, let me use an example and tailor a bit. And I, I, I went to a movie. This was many years ago. I wasn't Presbyterian. I was charismatic, so we could go to movies like this back then. Um, but anyway, this movie, I won't tell you the name of it. Um, but anyway, in this movie, um, a person becomes God for a while. Um, and uh, some of you are maybe sinners back when I was, and you probably know the movie I'm talking about. But um, anyway, uh, he just, he, he was overwhelmed, and he ended up just answering everybody's prayer with a yes. That's, that's what he did. He just, every prayer that came in, and it came in like a computer, and something he had to go through it, and he just, he just kept, yes, 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 and answered uh, every single prayer that way. And, and there, uh, the next day, you hear all these people talking, and they're all talking to each other. Hey, I won the lottery. Yeah, I did too. I won a buck. Everybody won a buck because they all won the lottery. So, uh, and, and, uh, But even in real life, you know, people pray. I hear people say that, and usually not believers, but I hear, oh, I'm praying I win the lottery. You know, I just want to win the lottery. And, but usually that's one of the worst things that can happen to people. And you hear lottery winners interviewed years later, and they say, it was the worst thing that ever happened to us. We heard from people, relatives we didn't even know we had. And they all started calling us and all of these things. And, and so it wasn't a, a great thing at all. And so, again, we don't always get it. John MacArthur says, if we persist in demanding our own way, we run the terrible risk that the Lord will grant us what we demand. So always come, come to the Lord um, just asking him and being humble to say, Lord, whatever, please make it clear to me. I don't want my way. I want your way, whatever that is, because your way is the best way. So is this request to have a king sinful or not? Well, yes and no, but probably yes, or I should say mostly yes, because there's several reasons. 
Number one, they're asking out of a wrong motive. They want a king, not because God said they would have a king, but they want a king because they want to be like other nations. And that's what they said. When we ask for something, even if it's right, if it's the wrong motives, it's wrong. James says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Your motives are wrong. God, in a sense, created Adam and Eve as gods in the Garden of Eden. But their motive for going after the fruit was to be God in all the wrong motives. And that's the way we are in doing that oftentimes. So when we ask for God to do something, we need to make sure our motives are right. Secondly, they were all off in their timing. God had a plan for kingship, but it wasn't yet. And so they said, we want a king, and we want it now. And how often God answers our prayers, but not in our timetable, right? He does it in his own time. Thirdly, they asked the request out of fear. They wanted a king to fight their battles because they were afraid they would be conquered. And they were afraid, but they didn't need to be afraid because they had God as their king. The request, a better request, would have been, to go to Samuel and say, may God grant us a godly successor to your ministry, whatever that may be, whoever the Lord will give to us. And it's hard to see the Lord refusing something like that. Years ago, in my early Christian years, in the 1970s, I was in what was called the Word of Faith movement, the Prosperity Movement, the Grab It and Blab It, or whatever uh, you want to call it. Um, but we were taught, we were to demand things of God. We were to demand God uh, to do it. This is what I want, God, and you have to do it. But really, I found through the years, it's just better not to demand God. It's just better not to do that at all. And so the elders say we want to be a king because we want to be like other nations. But to ask for an arrangement to be like other nations, they're asking for the exact opposite of what God said he chose them for. God chose Israel through Abraham because he wanted a people who weren't like other nations. He wanted a kingdom of priests. He wanted people that would be, according to Exodus 19, his treasured possession among all the peoples. And you shall be a kingdom of priests to me and a holy nation. This is what God wanted. He said, you shall be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy, and you shall be like me. And you shall be separate from other people and other nations. And so to come to Samuel and say, we want to be like other nations, is to abrogate the very reason for their existence. And that's what's wrong. So is there a lesson in that for the church? We're called to be different from the world, aren't we? Now I'm going to go back quite a ways again here in history into my early life, and so some of you won't be able to identify with this. But when I was in, I was a Christian uh, through all my years in, in school. I, I, even early or later elementary school years, I, I was always a Christian believer. Beginning in seventh grade, I used to carry my Bible to school and stuff. And so, so I, uh, I, I, I was a, like to be a witness. And and in high school, the guys that I hang around with were were part were part of the rock and roll band. They had a hard rock band. I don't even know what that means anymore. But anyway, they, uh, you know, and there were the drug addicts and all of this stuff that that I used to hang around with because I wanted to to win them to the Lord. And uh, I remember very clearly the day, and 
some of you are not going to have any clue what this what happened here. But um, I discovered Christian rock music. Now you tell I'm going back a ways, right? And I thought, wow! And the guy I discovered was this guy called Larry Norman, and and uh, I thought, oh. I said, I can't wait to go to school. And I got to tell these people that I got, that we've got uh, the same kind of music in the church. You know, we've got it. So I was so excited. And I went to the drummer of the band and I, I said, oh, I said, man, you won't believe this, but we've got Christian rock now. He says, so this is, I thought, man, they just turned to Christ immediately because now there's Christian rock, right? I mean, why would anybody not turn to Christ? So I said, yeah, we've got this. And, uh, and I expected him to get all excited. And he said something to me that's chastised me to this day. And I can't believe he said this to me. And he said, hey, Kim, if what you have is so great, why do you have to go to get stuff like us to make it attractive? Now, I'm not criticizing Christian rock. Don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying it was, a, it was a very good rebuke to me to say that that wasn't the way that I was going to win my friends to Christ was by doing this. And so, sometimes we take, and I'm not talking about this church, but sometimes the church takes the very worst things of the world and brings them into the church to attract the world to them. And oftentimes they're very successful at it. But I don't know about successful spiritually, but they're successful numerically in other ways. But we have to be careful that we don't try to do things to bring uh, the world's ways into God's people. The simple truth is God's people are to be unique, but we grow tired of being unique. We don't want to be separate. We don't want to be not liked. And so we try to bring things in. And some are okay, perhaps, and others are not good at all. The people wanted a king, and I'm going to close with this. The people wanted a king so they could be like other nations. But we want a king... The king we need is who's one that's not like any other king. In John 18, we have the account of Jesus before Pilate, and the question arises to whether or not he's a king. And Jesus will say he's a king, but he's not a king like any other. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. The king that Samuel told them about would be marked by taking As I told you, the word take appears six times in the text. And there's a principle here that the more you want government and leadership to do to you, the more freedom you're going to lose. And eventually you become slaves of the state. And I'm not preaching political stuff here at all this morning. Don't don't take me wrong, but it's just a general principle that is true. They wanted the king to fight their battles, but they ended up actually being slaves to that king. And it would be that way, not only under Saul, but under Solomon, who would take slaves and take the Israelites as slaves to his house, but continuing particularly under Rehoboam and all of the hardness that he brought into Israel and the great rebellion which led to two nations. And the same is true of sin to us. When we, when we give in to sin, then we become slaves. Paul says, don't you know, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But here's the point I want you to remember. When I said a king like no other, our king is marked by the word Give. 
Listen to these scriptures. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen to these and listen for the word give. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. John 5.21, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. John 14.27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Acts 11.18, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then the Gentiles, to Gentiles, has also God given repentance that leads to life. Acts 17.25, not to be served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists, and he rewards those who gives him. James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Even on earth, Jesus continually gave to those that came to him asking. And now that he sits in heaven, he still becomes the great giver who gives of his life for us, who gives of himself to the cross, that if we can just believe in him and trust in him, that he can be our savior and he can take us and we can take him to be our Lord. And he gives to us, as the old song says, out of his infinite mercies in Jesus, he gives and gives and gives again. Trust in Christ. He is the giving king. He will never fail you. Trust in him. Give your life to him. And you will never be sorry to be in service to that great and glorious king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for what you teach us. And we praise you for it. And we ask now that you would use this word, I pray, to touch people's lives. And if there are those who have never indeed submitted their life to you, that they may do so this morning, Lord. We praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.